Welcome to East Lansing Crime Warp, a podcast hosted by Verena Danielle and Wajiha Kamal. Each week we'll update you on current crime and then we'll take you back to a crime blast from the past. Thank you for listening and stay tuned. Hi, I'm Verena. I'm a freshman at MSU and I'm the Minority Affairs Reporter at the State News. My name is Wajiha and I'm a Cops and Courts Reporter at the State News and I'm a freshman at Michigan State University. This week, we'll feature the story of serial killer Don Miller, but first, some local crime updates. The Lansing Police Department is looking for help in two cases. The Lansing Police Department needs help locating a missing person, 38-year-old Andrew Thomas Watson II. He was, he was 5 foot 5 tall and 140 pounds. If you have any information regarding the location of Mr. Watson, please contact Crime Stoppers at 517-483-STOP. Another um, case that the Lansing police needs help for is police are searching for Willie C. Cole Jr. He's a male. He's 50 years old, 5'5", five five, 175 pounds, black hair, brown eyes. He's wanted for questioning in a criminal sexual conduct investigation by the Lansing Police Department. What do you think of this, Marina? What's your opinion on these two crime stoppers? Um, I think that this is really fitting for the case that we're about to talk about today because um, a lot of it was um, losing people and uh, sexual assault. So I think that um, it's kind of interesting that this lines up with that. Yeah, I definitely agree. They definitely ride that same disturbing Mm -hmm. wavelength, and I think it's important to draw awareness to these sorts of things when we're talking about crime and the criminal justice system. Second off is an MSU police update um, regarding employment of the chief of police and director of the MSU police department. So uh, our president, um, Mr. S- Dr. Stanley, announced the three finalists for chief of police and director of MSU police department. So um, the first one was Marilyn Lynch. He was the first finalist. The second finalist was uh, Joseph A. Lemeyer. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. And the last um, finalist is David Zambri. Um, and those are the three finalists for the chief of police and director of MSU Police Department. How do you feel about this, Verena? Are you looking forward to it? Um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see um, who ends up uh, becoming the next chief of police. Yeah, I think it's really important for the MSU, for the MSU community and students to feel mm-hmm. safe around campus. Um, our next update is actually about East Lansing Police Department. I received um, notice that um, as part of a revisioning strategy for police services in East Lansing, they actually formed a community engagement team consisting of um, non-police social workers and neighborhood resource specialists. Um, the first one is, her name is Amber, and the other one is name is Maria, and they're now full-time social workers at the East Lansing Police Department. And I think this is really cool, and I'm sure you'd agree with me. Yeah, I think it's um, it's interesting that they're taking this approach to um, to root out you know situations where maybe you don't need police officers and you could um, de-escalate a situation a lot more peacefully. I think that's a really good um, initiative. Yeah, I definitely think this is something a lot of communities around the nation need right now, and I'm pre- and I'm yeah. definitely sure it's going to have a positive impact on the community and just community community building in general. So those are. 
So those are our crime, local crime updates for today. Now it's time for the crime blast from the past. Disclaimer, this story includes graphic descriptions of murder and sexual assault. Donald Jean Miller grew up in East Lansing in the 60s and 70s and was seen as an innocent boy next door. He majored in criminal justice at Michigan State University and was involved in his church as a youth minister. Martha C. Young lived, in, lived with her family in a house down the road from the Millers. She was friends with Donald's older sister. The Miller and Young families attended the same church as well. Martha and Donald began dating and eventually became engaged in the winter of 1976. At the time, he was 21 and she was 19. The engagement was short-lived as Young decided to call it off just two days before New Year's Eve. Martha's mother said she didn't want to go through with the marriage because she felt that her fiancé was underperforming academically, never studied, and was pressuring her to do the same. Young also found it strange he had little to no work experience at his age. Miller was bitter over the broken engagement, but persuaded Young to keep the ring as a gesture of friendship. However, what Miller had in mind for him was not friendship. Yeah, I definitely feel like this is very scary to think about, in a sense, because this person, um, Donald, he attended Michigan State University, and it mm -hmm. really makes you think about safety in the community, yeah. and sort of the dynamic of their relationship, mm -hmm. and this this poor, poor young woman, woman was targeted by this man, and it makes you think about relationship dynamics yeah. and the MSU community and how we can make it even safer than it is now. I agree. Um, I think that, you know, situations like this where it's people our age going to our school, um, you know, living in our community, um, it makes you think that this really could be anybody and it could, you know, it could happen to you. A lot of people have this mentality when they look at things like this and they feel very disconnected. They're like, oh, this is just a cool story. But this kind of, like, puts it into perspective because it hits so close to home. Yeah, and this, this Donald is, was described as a boy next door figure, yeah. an innocent person. Mm -hmm. And it really makes me think, how are we judging each other and what's really behind the facade that we put on every day? And yeah. in that sense, is really interesting and in how we have to be more aware of who we're talking to mm -hmm. and each other. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's a reminder that people only let you see the parts of them that they want you to see. Definitely. Definitely, I agree 100%. On New Year's Eve, Martha babysat for a family from their church and was given permission to bring Miller with her. The pair watched a movie with their charges until the parents returned, and then Miller drove Young to his home. They watched another movie and ate some pizza. Miller was supposed to drive her home that night. In his car, he and Martha talked, and she told him that she no longer had feelings for him. In a rage, Donald raped and strangled Martha to death and buried her in Pregoras Park. Sue Young, Martha's mother, called the Miller house on New Year's Day to tell them Martha hadn't been seen since she left with Donald. Miller and his parents visited the Young home shortly, and the police showed up and questioned Miller. They found his behavior odd and noticed that he asked Mrs. Young to make him tea as if nothing happened, but there was no evidence or concerning statements given. Miller insisted he had taken Young home after the date the night before. How do you feel about this? What's um, your I think that, outlook? Um, I think that the, uh, you know, the way that he acted like nothing happened, um, you know, he's supposed to be something that he cared about. The way he was just kind of nonchalant about it, asking for her mom to make him tea. 
Um, I think that was a pretty good indicator. Um, yeah, of, you this, know, his character. He exactly. really did not care. This is the person he wanted to be married to, and she goes missing. And he asks her mother to make him tea as nothing happened. And that's a, yeah. that's not, that's beyond a red flag. A hundred percent. The police had no evidence, but were suspicious of Miller immediately. While they couldn't arrest him, they maintained surveillance of Miller and searched his car twice. The first time, Martha's glasses were under the front passenger seat, but they went undetected. Miller destroyed the frames before the second search. Nothing in his body was right under their nose as well. Pagoda's Park in Bath Township was searched. A police notorious for bodies being discovered, but the police found nothing. Police administered polygraph tests, which indicated that Miller was lying or was holding information, but this was still not enough to warrant an arrest. I definitely think that there's police um, malpractice in sorts. Um, this Miller, he, he literally destroyed the frames before the second search, and her body went undetected. So it really makes me ponder, like, did the police even try? Because although yeah. they were suspicious of Miller, what were they doing to apprehend him? Mm-hmm. I feel as though there could be more done to bring him to justice early on and avoid this, um, to stop him before it deteriorates even further. Yeah, and I think that um, the, just like the, the coincidence of it all, like the way that they were in his vehicle, a car's not that big, first of all. So exactly. Like, like the flashes were right there, and it could have all been over at that point, but for, you know, some, the stars aligned or something, and um, it worked out for him. But it could have just been all over at that point, and you know, other lives could have been saved. So I just think the way those things play out um, is pretty interesting sometimes. Yeah, I definitely think that um, he, you know, he took advantage of what happened in the situation, mm-hmm. and I definitely think there's more that could be done um, to yeah. you know, put him to justice when this happened, and to sort of avoid what happens later on. I definitely think that was possible. Um, yeah, a car is not that big. It's it's very odd to me that they went undetected and he yeah. was able to destroy them. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I wonder, like, what um, what made him decide to, like, go through after the search and make sure that there's nothing in his car. Because, you know, you'd think that they, they looked everywhere. He watched them search. I wonder, like, what in his mind made him, you know, look for anything that could have been left. Yeah. Um, I wonder, did the police um, run, find DNA? I mean, she was in his car. Um, If her body was in there, she was, there was a struggle, then it seems, like, obvious that there would be some sort of DNA, hair left, but the police didn't find that and they didn't find her glasses. And obviously, I feel like glasses would be easier to catch than a strand of hair, but I, I still think that it's kind of unbelievable that yeah. nothing was found. I agree. Yeah, 100%. Almost two years after Martha Young went missing, Miller became interested in a 27-year-old wom- woman named Marita Chiquette 
who reminded him of his former fiance. Chiquette and Young were similar in physical features and personality. Both of the women were religious, conservative, and studied at Michigan State. Miller took Chiquette out for breakfast on the morning of June 14, 1978, and while in his vehicle, she told him she wasn't interested in him romantically. Miller stabbed her 17 times, and her body was left in a wooded area in Aladdin Township, where it was found by a farmer two weeks after she disappeared. Her body was described as mutilated, and her feet were tucked underneath her, which made it seem that she had fallen from a kneeling stance. Chiquette was naked from the waist up, and her hands had been severed. So there's definitely a lot to unpack here. Um, while I was reading, um, uh, it said that he had severed her hands because um, in their struggle he had handcuffed her, and he couldn't unlock the handcuffs. So his solution was to cut off her hands. And I think that he did that because he wanted to leave very little um, evidence or, you know, anything that he might have touched, he wanted to take. Um, and this was a recurring pattern for him. He, uh, he would take things off of the person's body. Um, I don't really know why, but I'm assuming just because he felt that it made him suspicious. Sort of but like a trophy. Yeah, it really could be that, too. Um, he stabbed her 17 times, um, but... Yeah, my question is, how was she, how, was she reported missing during those two weeks? Did she have family, um, who sort of were, like, doing, like, act, like, filing a police yeah. report or trying to find her in those two weeks? Um... It, that's a quite a long time. I mean, not a, mm -hmm. an like a humongous amount of time, but um, I'm wondering if there was a filed police report, um, a missing persons report, or um, were her, was her family looking for her? That kind of spurs my interest. Yeah, her car was left at, um, at her, but she worked at a radio station, I believe, um, or something like that. She worked at a studio. She left her car there. Um, before they had gone to breakfast. So I think that's what, um, that's what triggered people to, um, to assume that she'd gone missing because her car was just sitting there for days. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, mm -hmm. that's so unfortunate. Surveillance teams had seen Miller scrubbing the seats of his car the same day Chiquette's body was found. Later that day, Wendy Bush, a 21-year-old student, was walking to campus near the Mon Ice Arena. Bush, like Chiquette, had features resembling young. Miller pulled up next to her and asked if she needed a ride. She accepted his offer and he drove her to Case Hall where she lived. They talked in his car for a few minutes. He began strangling her and when she was dead, he drove around with her body still sitting in his front seat looking for a place to stow her corpse. Half an hour later, he found a wooded area near subdivision development. He took her clothes home with him. Yeah, this definitely kind of strikes a nerve for me because um, mm -hmm. I would have lived in Case Hall this year. So I, yeah, um, I'm in James Madison College at Michigan State, so mm -hmm. I would have been dorming there, so mm -hmm. I I can picture this happening. Yeah. Because I know the location. Um, right. Yeah. And obviously, yeah, obviously he so has a type. Sorry. He has a type. Yeah. Um, And I think that, like, with this pattern we see, it really shows that, he, um, he felt that he had to 
project his anger um, from that first situation onto everybody that um, that reminded him of that person, which is pretty. Um, I think that gives a good yeah. idea of his like psyche, you know. Like, um, I'm not super um, exact with the terminology, but um, I think that was the trigger. Um, the first incident yeah. when his engagement broke off, that triggered something because obviously yeah. he's targeting women who look like this woman who did not w- want his advances, did not want to marry him. Um, yeah. So that's... He- yeah. The fact that he drove around with her body just, like, sitting in his seat also is crazy to me. Because That's nuts to me, too. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if there was another car passing by. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, maybe this was more at night. But um, it's definitely, I can definitely picture it happening location-wise. Yeah. Miller was on his ride home two months later on August 14, 1978, when he noticed a woman who he thought looked like Martha Young walking down the street. He offered her a ride, and she declined. Later, a passerby who witnessed the exchange and drove off visited police and underwent hypnosis in order to make sure the memory of the incident was more vivid. Nancy Daniels said she passed in her car as Miller shoved Christina Stewart into his car and began repeatedly stabbing her. She said Miller made eye contact with her, so she drove away. Miller drove the body to a field in Clinton County. That would be such a wild experience to just, you know, be at the wrong place at the wrong time, witnessing this thing. And then, right, and then... That's terrifying. Like, she said that she, she, in the moment, she couldn't process it, so she, like, she just walked away, you know. The only logical thing you can do in that moment, you know, that's, that's very overwhelming. And then she, uh, she called the police and told them that she witnessed that, so they met with her. Um, she, uh, she did the hypnosis thing, and, um, and she just, like, revisits that in her mind, I guess. And I think... That's just so crazy to me. I don't think I could ever get over that. Yeah, I would not know what to do in that situation. And I think a lot of people will say um, she should have stopped it. She should have done something. She should have put herself, like, in the crosshairs. Um, But at the same time, I couldn't say for sure that I'd do that. Um, Yeah. It's very traumatizing to witness that, let alone... Mm -hmm. um, you know, if she did intervene and it did go wrong, you know, she wouldn't have been able to report it. She did her duty and, yeah, you know, she, she helped bring this closer to justice. Um, yeah. And I think that takes tremendous strength because yeah. she was still out there when she reported it to the police. Yeah. She could have, um, she could have, you know, driven away, minded her business, never thought about it again, forgotten that she experienced that, but she did feel that she needed to um, to bring awareness to that, which is good. Yeah, I definitely um, applaud her for that. She did what she had to do. She did it. Miller entered the home of a 14-year-old girl named Lisa Gilbert on August 16th after meeting her while she was outside the home, calling for her brother to come back from a nearby pond. He asked her if her father was home, and thinking he was a contractor, she told him what time she expected him home. 
He asked to borrow writing utensils and paper. Gilbert went inside to find some, and Miller followed her into the home. Gilbert began sorting through a drawer to find supplies. Miller grabbed her throat with one arm and held the knife to her neck. He led her into the master bedroom and forced her onto the floor. He returned to the living room and locked the front entrance to the house. He came back and removed her clothes before gagging and tying her arms and legs behind her back. He slid a shirt over her head and began raping her. I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah. Other than, you know, I hope Lisa found justice and I hope that afterwards she found I she finds some peace. Yeah. You know? Like this is so traumatic. And I can't imagine that effect mm-hmm. on one one individual. So I hope she she's a survivor and she's incredibly strong and I hope she's doing well. And I hope, you know, she find she found a way to sort of survive afterwards. Yeah. I think that the the worst thing about this is um this like her home was newly built, so she uh, she thought that this person was a contractor because um, they were coming in and out frequently. And um, so she was very trusting of this person, didn't give it a second thought, thought she was going out of her way to be helpful to somebody. And, you know, this person did that to her in her own home. And I think that at that age it's very traumatic because you're very trusting of people still. Um, you're not, you know, just a lot of... I don't even know what to say about that. Yeah, this is her home. You know? Yeah. Someone's home represents safety, mm-hmm. family, love, and then, you know, you help others, you're kind to them, mm-hmm. and you open your house to them, you try to help them. Yeah. You know, how do you get that trust back afterwards? It would be something really difficult, and I don't know where you'd go from there yeah and you know the best thing is i don't know what the best like i don't know what you would do like i don't i can't speak to me some experience mm-hmm. other than you know i hope she's doing well i mean she's a survivor yeah. and you know and she had a good heart she was an innocent young girl and it's not it doesn't have anything to do with her. None of this is a problem with her. It's a problem with right. this deranged person who needs help. Yeah. Who needs to be put away. After sexually assaulting Gilbert, Miller wrapped a belt around her neck and strangled her. Lisa was losing consciousness and the belt ended up snapping. Randy Gilbert, Lisa's 13-year-old brother, returned home through the back door to find his sister being sexually assaulted and strangled. Being alarmed by the presence of a witness, Miller left Lisa tied up and gagged and approached Randy. Randy said Miller told him he wouldn't hurt him and then forced him to lead the way to his room at knife point. Seeing an opportunity, Lisa was able to unbind her legs and flood the home and flag down a passing car for help, naked and with her arms tied around her back. A man stopped his car behind Miller's and got out. Miller instructed Randy to lay face down on the floor of his bedroom and then sliced his neck. 
Randy knocked the knife out of Miller's hand and struggled against Miller as he began to choke him. Randy lost consciousness, and Miller picked his knife up. He stabbed Randy Gilbert twice in the chest, puncturing his leg and scratching his heart. This one to me is just, I think it speaks to the kind of person she was, um, because, you know, she, she tried to do something nice for this person, and that's what happened. And then, you know, it's very brave, like, to run out of your house, to, like, make it, you know, that's a very vulnerable thing to do, especially after what she had just um, gone through, and she trusted that somebody else was going to be able to help her. And that, it's just, yeah, and her brother was 13, and she's 14, mm-hmm. um, and they were so young, so young. Yeah. And, you know, that, that innocence, so, mm-hmm. that innocence is gone. Yeah, and he was 23, so this is somebody much older, probably much bigger and stronger that they're fighting against, and they... You know, they fought as much as they could, and they, um, they, you know, she wasn't going to let her brother uh, go through that alone. So she, you know, she ran out of her house naked because she wanted to help. That that's just crazy to me. Yeah, she she's fighting not only for her life but for her brother's life. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope that you know. They survived this. They're fighters. They're survivors. And this does not define them. It shows their character yeah. for sure. They show It shows strength. It shows perseverance. Um, it, mm-hmm. shows their, it shows their strength. And it shows that um, they were going to fight. And I mean, 100%. yeah. And they, she, she took that chance. And... She survived because of it. And, you know, I, I I don't know what else to say other than it's... When you read about, you know, serial killers and crimes, it, it, it's a lot. And, you know, this... Reading about it is one thing, and then experiencing is another. And mm-hmm. reading about it does not do justice to the horror. It is. Miller walked out of the house casually. The man told Miller to stay put and that law enforcement was on their way. Miller took off in his car, but the witness had already gotten his license plate. The car came back and was registered to Donald Miller. All siblings survived the attack, and later multiple witnesses who saw Miller exit the Gilbert residence, including the people who stopped to help Lisa, were able to identify him by photograph, leading to his arrest two days later. After his arrest, with no physical evidence linking him to the murder of Choquette and no other bodies being found, he confessed to all four murders under hypnosis. In prison, awaiting his parole hearing, Miller sent a letter to Rod Sadler, an Eaton County Sheriff's Department sergeant, expressing his motive. He told Sadler he was struggling with uncontrollable anger and called the murders of the three women after Martha Young copycat killings. You know, the word that strikes me the most is casually. He did not mm-hmm. care. And yeah. I think that speaks a lot to his mental space state which I obviously cannot speak to because I'm not an expert but it it speaks a lot that word speaks millions um you cannot be ca- yeah, I, I don't know how someone can be casual about that I mean obviously yeah. he's not obviously he he's a monster he there 
but when you hear about it and it's casual, how can, like, it? it's hard to fathom, I suppose. Yeah, I think that it takes a, um, it takes a special person to, you know, to be able to do this kind of thing. Because, I don't know, it's just a lot to unpack the way that, you know, you... And he admits to it. He says, I was, I have, yeah. I'm struggling with uncontrollable anger after Martha Young. You know, this was never Martha Young's fault. You know, after, like, because she broke up with him, broke off their engagement, that doesn't make her accountable to his crimes. He's accountable to his crimes. And his uncontrollable anger is his uncontrollable anger. And it, it's not a copycat. It's... It's a pattern, and I'm not sure what he thinks being a copycat killing essentially means because it's to me it's quite obvious that he has a pattern, and um, that's speaking to, you know, something beyond just a copycat killing. Yeah, and the the crazy thing to me is these are children, okay? These are innocent children, 14 and 13 years old. And they, they had absolutely nothing to do with him. They didn't know who this man was. Um, they, you know, they, they're not responsible for anything that happened uh, to him in, you know, in a previous uh, relationship or anything like that. And he was still ready to, like, take his anger out on them. Exactly. Like, and what does a 13-year-old child have to do with Martha Young and his, uncontro- his copycat killings, as he says? That's that's quite a light way to put it, um, mm-hmm. and I feel as though he is so casual about it because he doesn't hold himself accountable. He doesn't think it's his fault. He thinks he's justified because of Martha Young and because his anger is uncontrollable. So it's sort of he's bouncing off the fact that he thinks he doesn't have guilt. Yeah, and I think that the most dangerous people and the scariest people are the people that go around feeling like they they don't have to take responsibility for their actions or, you know, don't show guilt for any of this. Exactly. Um, and he, it's far more than I think just an issue about accountability. I think uh, it goes much deeper than that, obviously, but um, he's he does not think he's at fault. He's casual about it. He does not care. Um, Mm -hmm. And that speaks to, you know, his mental state perhaps and who he is. And um, he sort of uses Martha Young as sort of a tool in that. At his trial in 1979, Miller claimed he was insane and had multiple personalities. Donald Miller was sentenced to only 52 years in prison on a plea bargain for voluntary manslaughter charges. In exchange for a lesser sentence, he provided details regarding the murder of Chiquette, as well as revealing the location of the remains of Young, Bush, and Stewart. Miller was up for parole in 2016, but a Michigan judge deemed him unsafe for release. His next parole hearing is set for August 2021. Um, what do you think of this? Um, again, the, the thing that's so chilling about this is how close to us it is. Um, you know, this was somebody that went to our school, you know, it, it was several decades ago, but 
you know, he lives in this community too. Um, and not only is, um, is that racism, it's the fact that, you know, there are probably, there are people that are capable of doing this in general, you know, and they're, they're among us everywhere. That's what this kind of shows. And it's very chilling. Yeah, it's people you may know. And it doesn't yeah. mean for sure that it's people you know, but it could be. And that's, I think, the frightening part. My interest is, he claimed he was insane and had multiple personalities. I'd like to hear from um, psychologists, forensic psychiatrists yeah. who, you know, talk to Miller. And I'd like to find out their viewpoint on his psyche and what sort of drove this internally. Um, yeah. And I'd also like to know if... if he did plead like he had multiple personalities and he claimed he was insane. Um, my question is, Was did he receive um, psychiatric help for this? Yeah, I'm very intrigued with that as well. I think that um, obviously, you know, going through prison and everything, he's probably um, had time to reflect or get help. Um, but I do think that it's important to uh, make sure that we fully evaluate everything um, before he's, you know, let back into uh, the community because... Yeah, I'm not sure he should be. I don't... I can't yeah. say what the, I cannot say that he should be let out, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. I can't speak to how he is now, but um, mm -hmm. it, it makes... It would make a lot of people very uncomfortable, and I'm not I'm not yeah. the only one who probably thinks that. But um, I definitely like to see how he thinks about what he did. Does he still I, deflect? Like, does he still not take accountability? Yeah, and I think that they um, they need to be thorough about it because you can just say anything, you know. To you can say, "Oh, I'm you know I'm doing great. You can change his behavior." He can pretend everything is fine, but that's what he was doing at the very beginning, and that's how he got so close. Well, he was going to marry this person, and he ended up finding it in himself to kill her. Um, exactly. That, yeah. The, the families of these people and, um, and the Gilbert children, those people are still alive. So, you know, not only is that scary for them, it's also... It's, it's a constant reminder, you know, they're going to see him around town, they're going to know that he's among them, and that's going to reopen wounds, I think. And I think even, you know, why does he think he deserves parole? Why does he think that? Mm -hmm. That that sort of piques my interest as well. Why does he think he deserves parole after what he did? Yeah, I think that um, 52 years is also not enough for somebody who murdered four people and almost made it six. Um, you know, he had full awareness of his crimes. Oh, um, yeah. From yeah. what I can yeah. see. Um, I obviously, then again, can't speak to his mental state, but from what I have read, it seems he, he knew what he was doing. He, he was aware it was wrong. He was aware um, and then he pleaded insane and multiple personalities, and now he's, he's, he wants parole. So it really does interest me. Why does he think he deserves parole? 
how has he changed? How does he deem himself a good person, a good candidate of parole? 2016 wasn't that long ago either. That was fairly recently. And I think that if he was on safe in 2016, then I don't think much has changed. Me too. And I hope that he is not let out. I can confidently say that as my view. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Stay tuned for one next week.